Elijah. I don't know about you, but I've really gained uh, a lot more appreciation uh, for this great prophet as we've spent months literally going through just the passages of the Bible when there are not that many. First uh, and Second Kings that speak about uh, this prophet, and just remember that all the things that he's accomplished, that he spoke out in a place in a time when it was very dark, when when so many had turned away from the true God, the living God, the God of Israel, and they were seeking after idols of the world, uh, and, and even the king, uh, King Ahab, and then his son Ahaziah had encouraged that and done that themselves. Elijah was not a popular guy in his day. His message was not one that people wanted to hear for the most part. We know that he lived in isolation at times. We don't know how long he was at Zarephath, but he was there by himself for a time. Now, we understand that he was not there alone. He was there with God. God was with him always. But in hiding for three years between there and Zarephath, and then he came, came back and he challenged Baal worship, idol worship in Israel and all the people that are involved in it uh, and encourage religious reforms. And I would like to be able to tell you this morning that Elijah's mission was fulfilled to the utmost. That by the time he died, that there had been a major evangelical thrust that had gone into the heart of Israel and tens of thousands and maybe millions of people had come to faith in the true and living God. Unfortunately, we, live, we see Elijah leaving the world very much in the same condition that it was when he came into it. Many, many years ago. Uh, if you're familiar with the Bible, the Old Testament it ends with a promise of Elijah coming. And then he was going to announce the coming of the Lord. And so we know that in, in essence that has taken place. You and I have the, the biggest advantage or great advantage in sitting on the other side of history when Jesus, the Messiah, has actually come. He's fulfilled so many of the things that, that the prophets like Elijah and, and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and so many of the others prophesied that did not come to fulfillment in their day, but only at a more distant future time. But Elijah, we know, is about to leave. The Lord is about to take him up. And he's taking him up in a way that is not typical. It's atypical, as a matter of fact. There's, only, there's no other place in the Bible uh, that we're told that anyone is taken up in a chariot of fire to heaven. We understand that when, when people die, our normal way of getting to heaven is when we die. Our spirit goes to, to be in heaven with the Lord while our body remains here on earth. Elijah is one of two people in all of the Bible who is spoken of as not dying. The other one is Enoch, who lived many, many years before he did. This is the day that Elijah is going to be taken up to heaven. He knows it. His, his disciple Elisha knows it. The sons of the prophets, his disciples, they know it. They know it's the day. They don't know exactly the circumstances, it's gonna t- how it's going to take place or anything like that. But they know. God has put it in their mind, into their heart, that this is the day that Elijah is going to leave them. And Elijah is starting out on this, this one-day sojourn with Elisha, who kept insisting on staying behind, 
or, or going ahead with him when he kept insisting on him staying behind. But he stood with him the whole day. He walked the whole distance from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho to, to the Jordan. Uh, and now they've come to the Jordan River. And we talked last week about how miraculously the Lord parted the Jordan River so that the, these two prophets could cross over together on dry land. We also... Remember from last week that some of the sons of the prophets, the, the, the disciples of Elijah, have actually followed at a distance, and they're standing at a distance, and they're watching from a distance. But that brings us to where we are today. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 14 in Second Kings Uh, Chapter 2, let me read it to you from the NASB to begin with. Now, it came about uh, when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be uh, so for you. Uh, But if not, it shall not be so. Then it came about as they were going along and talking that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire which separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. That would be pretty cool. I'd much rather do that than, than have to go through the dying process first, wouldn't you? They're at the end of their long walk. It's late in the day. The sun has got to be beginning to set the western horizon. They know the time is upon them. Can't be a whole lot of time left before Elijah leaves. And just like you can imagine, we can all put ourselves not necessarily in the sandals of Elijah, but we know what it's like to have a sense of the parting of dear people that we know and we love. They're getting close to the time of death, uh, and etc. So, so we can relate in some ways to what is going on here. We're going to see real grief on the part of Elisha when Elijah does leave. His heart is is grieved, not because he's going to heaven, not because of the benefit that that he has and all of it, that Elijah has and all of it, but because. He's no longer going to be able to take these walks. He's no longer going to be able to have these talks with his mentor. And he's going to be the leader now. He's going to be the one that everyone else is looking to. Very often when people are reaching this point in their life, they have a desire to leave something behind to their loved ones. Sometimes we call it an inheritance, material possessions, right? Very often uh, just kind of spoken about in what we call a will. So-and-so gets this, so-and-so gets that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we understand that Elijah is not a person of means, not a wealthy man. He doesn't live in some big palace somewhere or anything like that. We know that probably the only worldly possessions he has are what are what his garments that are on him and maybe one or two little articles somewhere. But he wants to leave Elisha with something. 
I just want to say this this morning, that it is biblical that parents leave, if possible, an inheritance to their children. That is the model that we see in the Bible. So I just want to challenge all of us. You know, I'm getting older. I just turned 64. Lori's birthday is today, too, so. She threatened to throw something at me if we sang happy birthday. Uh, but I'm getting older, and as I get older, I'm more determined in a lot of things. And one of those is just to make sure Lori's taken. That's my biggest concern of all, is making sure that Lori's taken care of. But at the same time, I want to leave my kids with something. You know, I really have never inherited anything from anybody except when my grandfather's died and I got a small amount of money that was enough to pay my tuition for one semester at college. But it's biblical, guys. We should want that. We should desire that for our kids. Just remember that, that uh, Elisha was the closest thing on earth that Elijah ever had, as close to being a son to him as anybody else. He loves him. He thinks the world of him. He has taken care of Elijah now for a time. They've grown very fond of one another. They've grown very close to one another. I can imagine that Elisha at this point cannot imagine what a day without Elijah is going to be like. Elisha could have asked for many things. Right? We know that Elijah is God's man and that he's done quite some very miraculous things through him. So we know that the, uh, you know, the whole ballpark was part of the picture, that Elisha could have asked him for absolutely anything. We do know this, that materially he will inherit Elijah's mantle, his cloak, right? But what Elisha does is he doesn't ask of anything in the material world. What he asks is spiritually. He asks for a spiritual inheritance, a spiritual blessing. He asks that a double portion of the spirit of Elijah be granted to him. Wow. Now, what exactly does that mean? Let's try to pick that apart a little bit. What is, what is, what is being taught to us here? Because we know this. We know that we are, we are beings, that, that we, and there's two parts to us. There's the immaterial spirit, soul part, and then there's the material, physical, fleshly body part, right? Is that what uh, Elijah is asking for? That the, the human spirit that, that Elijah has, could he have twice as much of it? Is that what he wants? I don't think so. And you probably don't either. We know this. We know that Elijah was a great prophet for one reason, and that is because God was strong in Elijah. Now, there are Christians today who believe that the giving of the Holy Spirit is strictly a New Testament phenomenon. But what I would challenge you with is that's a no-no. And being Reformed, we, say, we take exception to that. 
we understand this, that the Spirit of God is absolutely necessary for every aspect of salvation. That if you believe today, you believe for one reason, and that is because God has anointed you with his Holy Spirit, and he had not done that, you would not be believing. He gets all the credit. All the credit. Elijah is strong because the Spirit of God is strong in Elijah. That's what makes him different. This is what Elisha wants. He doesn't want just as much of God as Elijah has. He wants more. Now, we might look at this and we might say, you know what, that sounds pretty arrogant or pretty proud on his part that he would, he would ask something like this to be twice the man of God as Elijah was and is. If you come to that conclusion, I just want to warn you about something. That is that Jesus actually encourages us to have this mindset. Okay? He says this. If then... Or if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Wow. Elisha is only doing what Jesus is going to encourage us to do. When was the last time you asked for the Holy Spirit abundantly? Have you ever asked for the Holy Spirit abundantly in all of your life? Bless you. Do you want to grow in Christ? Do you want to be strong in God? It's not going to happen without the Holy Spirit. There is very good reason for asking for such things. There are also wrong reasons. The wrong reason for asking something uh, for something like this is self-gratification. In other words, you want more of the Holy Spirit because you know in some way you're going to benefit from it. People will think very highly of you. You'll be admired and honored by other people. Maybe it'll bring some greater physical, you know, worldly rewards to your door. Maybe it'll make your place in heaven more strongly secured than it already is. Those are all wrong reasons. Some of those even sound like they're pretty godly reasons. The right reason, and we have to understand this is Elisha's reasoning. that he would have twice the spirit of Elijah, that God would be honored and glorified in it and because of it. That he would be praised. That he would be loved with one's heart and soul and mind and strength. 
that he would be an encouragement to fellow believers and at the same time he would be a challenge to those who are yet unbelieving. Good reasons. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And he's speaking specifically there about the Holy Spirit. You ever feel like an orphan? You don't need to. Not if you know the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10, and he said, you have asked a stubborn thing. If you see me when I'm taken up from you, this will be done for you. But if not, it will not be. I want you to understand something here that uh, it's more than just a hard thing. I mean, there's all kinds of hard things to do, right? You know some hard things. You've done some hard things. You've tried to do some hard things and you failed, Right? But there's a little difference here. We're talking about something that is really, really stubborn. In other words, it's not just something that takes strength to move or whatever. It resists you in the process of doing it. Now, why would, why would this prophet convey this kind of idea about this? What is it in you? What is it in me that resists the work of the Holy Spirit? Maybe our sinful nature. Is your, stu- is your sinful nature stubborn? Is it? Let me ask you, do you have besetting sins? In other words, are there sins in your life that you, 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 know, you go around the corner and every time you do, you trip all over yourself and it's just you all over again, that same sin all over again? We call those besetting sins, sins that are just there's something that you deal with all the time, and every time you think you've put them to death, you put them to rest, and whammo, bammo, they're right in your face all over again. The human spirit is stubborn toward God. The fallen human spirit is stubborn toward God. But let me tell you, God can overcome it, and he's the only one that can. Elijah's request is stubborn, but it's not impossible. It is impossible for Elijah to grant this to him. You need to understand that that he's asking for something Elijah himself has no power at all to convey. Elijah knows this, that if this gift is given to Elisha, it's only be by God's hand. But he knows enough of the Lord. It can be. Elisha knows that if he's to continue where Elijah left off, he can't do it on his own. He needs God. 
as much of God as he can have of God, and so that is what he has granted. Some movie series over the years I've really loved. When Raiders of the Lost Ark first came out, gosh, when it was in the late 70s or sometime in the 70s or something, it, it was a movie that stayed in the theater in Ocala for three months. It was so popular, people loved it. I went to see it like three or four times. And we didn't have, you know, videos at home in those days, and they didn't put new movies on TV. They'd put old movies on TV that were 50 years old sometimes. But I always loved those Raider of the Lo- uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark movies, and the one I like maybe best is the one where Sean Connery played as his father, and it was just a really a good combination between the two of them. But the title of that one was uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, The Last Crusade, Search for the Holy Grail. And so that's what the movie's all about, and it's not only he and his comrades that are looking for the grail, it's the bad guys, you know, who are Nazis and, and whatever, looking for it, and a wealthy American who had become a, a, a traitor and all of that in the process. But it comes to the end of the movie, and, and he and, and these other people, they enter into this room, and it's filled up with wine chalices, glasses, cups, those kinds of things. And the deal is, if you pick the right one, then you have eternal life in your hand. So the bad guy goes first, and he chose badly. Because you take your chalice that you pick, and then you dip it into the water that's there, and he was consumed before everyone else. Then it's Indiana Jones' turn, and so he looks, and he's, not, and he's not looking at the most magnificent, the one with the most jewels on it, the golden one, and this, that, and the other. He sees this one that is a simple one made out of ceramics that a simple potter would make on a potter's wheel. Is he a believer? I don't have a clue if he's a believer or not. It's got nothing to do with my point. They took that, and he took it to his father, who was mortally wounded, Sean Connery. And he drank from it, and he lived. But the caretaker of the whole thing, he said this, you chose wisely. And my point here is this, is that Elijah chose very wisely. He could have asked for anything. He made the most wise, the, the wisest choice he possibly could have. So, what is the greatest desire of your heart? As they were walking and talking, Behold, a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up in a whirlwind to heaven. Amazing, magnificent, dumbfounding. 
you can imagine what they were. They were just walking along. They got to the east side of the Jordan River, and the other folks are still on the other side, presumably, and, and all of that. And they're just walking around. This is where God told them to go. God didn't tell them to go anywhere beyond the Jordan River. He hasn't enlightened Elijah to any further point in their mission. They're just walking along, probably beside the Jordan River, and they're talking. And what do you think they might be talking about? Just remember, this is the last opportunity for Elijah to give wisdom and wise counsel to his protege. It's the last time for Elijah to ask Elijah particular questions about particular things. So you can imagine that's what their conversation probably had to do with. Last-minute details. Then suddenly, a fiery chariot appears in heaven and swoops down and evidently cuts right between the two of them. And it carries Elijah up to heaven and leaves Elisha behind, crying out, My father, my father. We'll get to that next week. Know about much about chariots. Don't see chariots around today, right? Was the time you saw a battle and there was chariots on the field instead of army tanks or something like that. But we all know what chariots are, and probably most of us know what chariots are because we saw the movie Ben Hur when we were younger, right? Had such a big, you know, the chariot race scene in that it was such a major aspect of that particular movie. That we understand that chariots were, were very often used as a measure of how mighty and powerful an army was. The more chariots you have, the more chances are you're going to be able to defeat your enemy. So they were something that very much were relished and cherished. We're just entering into the Iron Age here, and, and many of these chariots had iron parts, which made them possible. Before that, they couldn't build something like this. But what they do is they give an advantage to the person who has them because now you've established a level platform that's moving from which you can shoot arrows and throw spears. You could also run over people, just all kinds of things. So you can understand why chariots are an advantage to the, uh, the army that has them. Sometimes they were used to transport royalty from one place to another. Right? You've seen movies, and sometimes they use chariots to carry the emperor of Rome around and other important people in those days. We talked about this before, that there are lots of Bible, lots of common sayings among men that have their roots in the Bible, right? Where he mentioned passing of the mantle. You know, when we talk about leadership, you know, one leader's leaving and the other leader's coming in and there's this passing of the mantle that takes place. I would imagine that that's the saying out of the clear blue could very well have find its roots right here in this narrative about Elijah. That out of the clear blue sky, suddenly there appears this fiery chariot from heaven. You and I can't even imagine anything like that. We probably, with our modern-day mentality, we probably think that it was in some alien spaceship that just entered the atmosphere. It 
the word here, the Hebrew word, the word that's translated as separate or divide, usually refers to things like dividing rivers by tributaries and, and things like that. But it, it conveys with it. It's like as if you take a sharp wedge and you drive it between the two. See, there was probably an essential element of that taking place here because Elijah is not going to have the opportunity to cling to Elijah. He can't grab his robe. He can't grab this, that, or the other and try to hold him back. When the, when the, when the division is made, it is made instantaneously and completely. Separating the two of them in space. We live way beyond the death of Elisha, right? We know that he didn't go to heaven the same way that Elijah did. He died. His death is even recorded in Scripture here for us. We know that for Elisha, it's not the last time he's going to see chariots of fire. There's a story that is told about him later on in 2 Kings where he's become acknowledged to be an enemy by the king of Aram. And so the king of Aram sends an army to this town called Dothan where Elisha happens to be. He's there with his servant Gehazi. And so they wake up the next morning and they see this massive army around the city. And Gehazi is scared. He's afraid. But Elisha said to him, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses, and guess what? Chariots of fire all around. You ever feel like you're all alone? That there's no one there, there's no one on your side? That you're standing against the tides. Maybe you should give some thought to this. You hear stories about missionaries that have experienced things similar to this. God's warriors protecting them. Those kinds of things. It's hard to imagine something like this taking place. I mean, it really is. It's beyond anywhere we can go. But I just want to say to you this, and that is, you know this. You've seen it over and over again. Every time there's an earthquake, you have people coming out and saying, yep, there you go, Jesus will be here at any second now. Been going on for 2,000 years, but every time there's a major earthquake, I get letters from from pastors here, there, and yonder that, you know, you better tie your shoes because we're getting ready to leave. That was 2,000 years it's been going on like that, right? But we do know this. We do know that there will be believers living in the world at the time of the second coming of Christ. And guess what? They will experience something very similar to Elijah. What the Bible tells us is this. A sign of the Son of the Man will appear in the sky, and it will send forth his angels, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, one uh, from one end of the sky to the other. 
Another passage, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and the dead uh, in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Isn't this pretty cool? In other words, what we're seeing here with Elijah is just a foreshadowing, a little glimpse of a far greater event that's going to happen in the future. What I'm telling you, if you're a believer today and Jesus comes today, you're going to know what Elijah just experienced. Pretty cool. I don't know about you, but I'm not particularly excited about dying. It might be a little different if I knew I was going to die in my sleep and not wake up or whatever, but you know, you, we, didn't ever, we never know how it's going to come. I just want to challenge us this morning that when we, we study the Old Testament, we always have to look at it through the eyes of the New Testament. And when we do that, it enlightens us to all kinds of things that we, we, we would be in the dark about otherwise. I hope you read your Old Testament. I tell people all the time, and this was true of me, when I first became a believer, I loved the Old Testament so much, I almost had to make myself read the New Testament. I have actually read it a few times now, so you can feel a little better. But just keep that in mind when you're reading. We're studying Ezra right now, and the foremost thing in our minds should be this, and that is how does the New Testament enlighten us to the the truth, the greater truth and the greater fulfillment that is before us now of all these things. Remember... Like I said, I just turned 64, and it amazes me what I forget. Let me just say this to you. I might be talking to you one day, and I might not be able to remember what your name is, even though I've known you for 25 years, and I've talked to you every day. Those kind of things happen when you get older. But we're forgetful people. Let's just be honest. And and, and age has something to do with it. It gets worse as we get older, but... But there have been times in our life, in my life when I was a little kid that I forgot things. And it was usually things that I forgot were things I really needed to remember. And I forgot them. So Jesus knows that we're forgetful people. So we need to be reminded on a regular basis of particular things. And that's what this Lord's Supper has to do with. To remind us. Remind us that Jesus has come. Remind us that Jesus has lived. Remind us that Jesus has died. Remind us that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins in that death. And he's also taken away the guilt of our sin. To remind us that he's no longer dead. His body's no longer dead. His spirit never died. That he's been resurrected. And that he's ascended into heaven. And right now as we speak, he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and all authority and power in heaven and earth has been given unto him. 
and to remind us it's not over yet. That he's coming again. The praise team is going to